Liver Eaton Johnson was blood kin to the grizzly that bit Jim Bridger's ass. And you are molesting my podcast. The man known today as Crow Killer was many things. Fur trapper, scout, guide, hunter, soldier, sailor, so-called Indian fighter, sometimes a good guy, sometimes a bad guy, possibly a cannibal, and always larger than life. Whole lot of tall tales surrounding this giant of a man whose life would inspire one of the greatest movies of all time, Jeremiah Johnson. So please join me today as we attempt to separate fact from fiction on this newest elf don't know how many legs a horse got. Watch your top knot. Yep, you watch your episode of The Wild West Extravaganza. John Livery and Johnson was born in New Jersey in 1824. Maybe. Or maybe it was 1831. Either way, he first came west to the Rocky Mountains in 1843. Uh, wait, or was it 1862? Oh boy. Lots of information and misinformation to wade through on this episode. Lots of layers to peel before you can get to the real Livery and Johnson. By the early 1860s, the Liver Eater was in Montana. And for the next four decades of the man's life, we got a pretty good idea of what he was up to. During those years, he prospected for gold, he served as a guide and a scout, he peddled whiskey, fought in the Civil War, and did a whole lot of fur trapping and hunting and fighting. It's Johnson's early life that's still pretty fuzzy, so please keep that in mind. Before we get to all those adventures in Montana, I will attempt to share a couple of different versions of John's younger years. And I know this episode's going to hurt a few feelings. We all love our heroes and our legends but I do strive to get as close to the truth as possible on this podcast. That said, let me just go ahead and state for the record that Jeremiah Johnson never existed in real life. He's a made-up character for a movie, albeit a great movie, one of my favorites. I just watched it for about the hundredth time a few days ago, and it is based mostly on two books, the fictional Mountain Man written by Vardis Fisher and Crow Killer, the Saga of Livery and Johnson, written in 1958 by Raymond W. Thorpe and Robert Bunker. Crow Killer has been rated over 900 times on Amazon and currently holds a 4.6 out of 5-star rating. Not too shabby. Only problem is, it, just like the book Mountain Man, is a work of fiction. That in and of itself is not a bad thing. My favorite book of all time, Lonesome Dove, is also a work of fiction. And just like Crow Killer, it's loosely based on real people and events. It's entertaining, inspirational, it'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry. It is, in my opinion, one of the greatest stories ever told. But it ain't real. Let me try this from another angle. Y'all ever read any Tom Clancy books? One of my favorites was The Sum of All Fears. After I read it, I went and saw it at the movie theaters. And to my astonishment, the only thing that the movie had in common with the book was the title and the name of some of the main characters. That was it. In fact, the movie was so different from the book that on the DVD commentary... Tom Clancy introduces himself as the author of the book that the director ignored, and then kind of goes on to make light of all the inaccuracies and differences between the book he wrote and the movie. This, as far as I'm concerned, is what the book Crow Killer is to the real-life Liver Eaton Johnston. And unfortunately, it is the story of the Crow Killer that a lot of people associate with the real-life Johnston. I really struggled with how to begin this episode because I didn't want to just come right out the gate and bash this book or try to rain on anyone's parade. But the true story of Johnson's life is fascinating and it is worth telling. It also just happens to be very different from the story put forth in Crow Killer and as such, very different from the story that you'll find plastered all over the internet. 
The truth is, there is no record of Johnston or Johnson ever setting foot in Montana before around 1860 or so. He himself would claim 1862, and there's no proof that he ever killed any Crow warriors, much less hundreds of them, in a vendetta to avenge his dead wife, the wife that he himself would later claim he never had. And he almost certainly never ate human livers. Now, as far as the sources I used when researching this episode, I read The Never-Ending Lives of Livery and Johnston by D.J. Herda. I also read The Avenging Fury of the Plains, John Livery and Johnston by Dennis J. McClelland. And I read Parts of Crow Killer, the new edition with the foreword by Nathan E. Bender. Another book that is often used as a source of information on Johnston's life that I did not read is titled I Buried Hickok by Joseph Wide-Eye Anderson. However, in the book I just mentioned, The Never-Ending Lives of Livery and Johnston, author DJ Herda does quote Wide-Eye's work several times. So I feel like I got a decent sense of it. And the book Crow Killer also uses these recollections of Wide-Eye Anderson as told to him by an old trapper named Del Gu regarding Johnson's life. Just keep in mind that I don't know much about Anderson. I have no idea if he was completely full of crap or a man of unquestionable honesty and integrity, or just somewhere in the middle. I did find out, however, that at times, Anderson went by the name Oyster Johnny, a fact that adds absolutely nothing to this story other than I found it amusing and thought it made him sound like the type of guy who sells bootleg DVDs out the back of a Honda Accord. As I previously touched on, the book Crow Killer took many creative licenses when it came to telling the liver eater story, so much so that I do not find it to be a credible source. Unfortunately, it is their version that is the most prevalent, so we at least have to give it a quick look. And this will be the version most of you are going to be familiar with if you've read any of the many online articles or blogs covering Johnson, or if you're like me and you're just a fan of the movie Jeremiah Johnson. But first, let me say this. There are some things that pretty much everyone agrees with when it comes to John Johnson's early life, like the idea that his real name wasn't Johnston and that he was from New Jersey. And most researchers do agree that Johnson spent some time at sea, eventually joined the Navy, and deserted after striking a commanding officer. All right, so here we go. According to Crow Killer, Johnson was born in 1824 and made his way out west by 1843. He got outfitted in St. Joseph, Missouri with a good hawk and rifle and some overpriced traps and headed for the Rocky Mountains in search of that beaver. He was still a greenhorn at this point, but to his good fortune, he fell in with an experienced mountain man by the name of John Hatcher who schooled him in the ways of trapping and survival. Shortly thereafter, John hooked up with another trapper by the name of Del Gue. Once again, if you've seen Jeremiah Johnson, this is sounding very familiar. He and Del Gue trapped together until the summer of 1847, when Johnson headed up to Flathead Country and married a young lady by the name of the Swan. The two lived happily ever after, or at least they would have, had not a Crow War Party swept down one day while Johnson was out trapping and killed the Swan along with her and Johnson's child. You know where it's going from here. Johnston then wages a one-man war of vengeance upon the entire Crow Nation, killing and scalping every single warrior responsible for the death of his family. And not only did he kill them and scalp them, but he also cut out their livers. Some say he ate the livers, raw. Others say he would take a bite out of the still-warm organ and spit it out, declaring that Crow liver ain't fit to eat. Still others claim that Johnston removed the liver as a way of ensuring that the dead warriors would never make it to the other side, forcing their spirits to roam the earth and never be at peace. After this initial vendetta, the Crow began to send their best warriors after Johnston, one at a time. And one by one, he killed them all. Nobody knows how many Crow Livery and Johnston killed, but estimates range from a couple of hundred to well over a thousand. This quarrel lasted nearly 20 years until finally Johnston rode into a Crow village alone and made peace. 
Now that's just a quick summary, but you get the picture. Another theme throughout the book Crow Killer is just how physically strong and imposing Johnson was. He was said to have been about six foot two inches tall and weighed in at over 240 pounds, all muscle, of course. For you MMA fans out there, this is roughly the same size as two-time heavyweight UFC champion Cain Velasquez. And Johnson was so strong, according to Crow Killer, that he actually had to take special care when hugging his friends so as not to hurt him. And just like Cain Velasquez, Johnson's hand-to-hand combat skills were next level. I don't know how many times the liver eater killed a man with just one punch, but it happened enough for the authors of Crow Killer to make note of it. There was one story where he killed five warriors in one fight using only his fists. And it wasn't just his hands that were deadly. The man was evidently one hell of a kickboxer as well. Not making this up, by the way. If you don't believe me on any of this, go get yourself a copy of Crow Killer and read it for yourself. Liver Eaton Johnson killed many a man with just one swift and furious kick of the leg. Hell, there was even one time where he killed two opponents at the same time with just one kick. Not a grizzly bear, though, because that would be unrealistic. Now, when it came time for him to kill an attacking grizzly bear, he dispatched the beast with his trusty Bowie knife. I mean, think about it. Are you really a mountain man if you haven't killed a bar with nothing but a knife? Both he and his horse could smell the, quote, engines from far away, and Johnson was known as the greatest manhunter and tracker in all of the Rockies. But when it came down to the actual fighting, he always gave his opponents a fair shot, or even an advantage. You know, sometimes he tossed them a weapon or let them draw first. And then there's the really believable story about the time he got kidnapped by the Blackfeet. They didn't kill him because they were planning on handing him over to the Crow for ransom. Which makes total sense if you just ignore the fact that the Blackfeet and the Crow hated each other. But let's not let that get in the way. Story goes that Johnson overpowered the guard, killed him, and then ripped off one of his legs. He then escaped the Blackfoot village in the dead of winter, munching on the leg every now and then just to keep the hunger away. Good thing he didn't eat the whole leg, though, because he'd eventually have to use it to fight off both the grizzly bear and a mountain lion. Yes, you heard me right. John Livery and Johnston fought off a grizzly bear and a mountain lion using the severed and partially eaten leg of a Blackfoot warrior. And once again, this is all coming directly from the book Crow Killer. You get what I'm trying to say, right? Obviously, a lot of this just sounds kind of made up, like some you'd read in a really bad paperback western. And okay, that's fine. You know, we can chalk it up to the authors being a little overzealous. But then there's the other little stuff like Johnson being schooled by the mountain man John Hatcher. According to everything I could find, the real-life John Hatcher was either down in Texas or New Mexico when they claim he was farther up north schooling Johnson on all things Mountain Man. And then there's Del Gue, great character in Jeremiah Johnson, but there's not a whole lot of evidence that the man really existed. And for that matter, there's zero evidence that Johnston ever went to war with the Crow Nation, a tribe that's always been friendly not only with the Mountain Men, but the settlers that would soon follow. And while there's no evidence that Johnson ever fought any crow, there is ample evidence to the contrary. Evidence that shows he not only lived with them, but went to war with them against their common enemies, the Lakota and the Blackfeet. As far as having married the flathead maiden, Johnson would later in life claim to have never taken a Native American wife. Although, as I'll soon discuss, there is actually some evidence he might have been fibbing and actually had him a crow wife at one point. He also denied ever eating human flesh numerous times, be it liver or leg. If you get your hands on a newer copy of Crow Killer, you can read the foreword written by Nathan Bender. It's pretty much a long disclaimer letting the reader know not to take anything in the book that seriously. And it compares their version of Johnson's life with the stories of Achilles or Beowulf, the stuff of legends. One last thing and we'll move on. There's a lot of debate about when Johnson was born. As I mentioned at the very beginning, some say it was 1824, while others say 1831. And there are sources that back up both years. 
If he were born in 1831, then obviously the whole thing about him going to war with the Crow is false because he would only have been like 16 years old in 1847. Not nearly enough time to have been in the Navy, desert, head to the mountains, and find him a wife. If he were born in 1824, it's a little more plausible. However, we do have military records for the real-life John Johnston. And according to author and researcher Dennis McClelland, Johnston was still at sea in 1847 when the Crow allegedly killed his wife and child. As for when he actually arrived in Montana, friends would say that Johnson arrived there from the coast around 1860. And according to him, it wasn't until 1862. Although I found another version of Johnson saying that he didn't reach Montana until 1867. Are you confused yet? History sure does get complicated sometimes. Livering Johnson was indeed a very real person. A man who, to paraphrase the aforementioned Dennis McClelland, was capable of both kindness and extreme violence. A larger-than-life character who, even taking away all the fluff and mythology, led a remarkably adventurous life. His is a story that doesn't need any Hollywood imagination to make it better. So alright, enough with the preamble. Let's discuss what I consider to be the more realistic story of John Livery and Johnson's early dates. Remember, almost everybody believes he was born in New Jersey, not far from the town of Little York, in Hunterton County in, like we've already said, either 1824 or 1831. I lean more towards 1831 for reasons I'll explain in a little bit. And Johnson's real name more than likely was William Garrison. Young Garrison didn't have an easy life as a kid. His father was a hard man who abused both the bottle and his son. As such, William took plenty of beatings at the hands of his old man and, as he grew older, was leased out to work for others as to pay off his father's debt. According to one neighbor, Garrison's father worked him, quote, nearly to the bone until he finally had enough and lit out for greener pastures. By greener pastures, I do mean the open sea. A 14-year-old William took to using his brother's name, John, and found work on a whaling schooner, and I had no idea how popular whaling was back in the day. Turns out people used old Moby Dick for all kinds of stuff. Whale oil could be used for burning lamps as lubricant or turned into a wax for candles. Whale bones were used in everything from corsets to umbrellas, whips, walking canes, brushes, even brooms. It would have been hard work for a boy just barely in his teens, but I can't help but think it would have been an exciting time for Garrison. If nothing else, it exposed him to a big, wide world outside of that tiny New Jersey bubble he'd been living in, and we can only imagine the various exotic ports he found himself exploring. Nobody can say for sure how long John worked as a whaler or what sort of adventures he got up to, but at some point, he joined the Navy, a career that did end when he struck one of his lieutenants. Now, this earned him a 30-day stint in the brig, and once he was let loose, he bid the Navy adieu, jumped ship, possibly in San Francisco, and went AWOL. Many sources hypothesize that this is when he took to calling himself John Johnston, you know, changing his last name as to avoid the long arm of the law. By the way, as far as the name Garrison goes, as an older man, Johnson would confide in at least one person that that was his real last name. And per official records, he did still have at least one sister in New Jersey at the time of his death. Also, there is a record of a John Garrison born in New Jersey who served on the Frygate Raritan during the war. There's obviously no way to 100% prove this is our Johnson, but the experts do seem pretty confident. Still, though, plenty of speculation going on here. Also, how horrible is the name John Johnston as a made-up name? Just sounds like he kind of came up with it on the fly. Reminds me of that scene from The Office where Dwight Schrute says uh, his dentist's last name is Crentist. Anyway, Johnston would eventually drop the T from his fake last name and just go by John Johnson. So if you hear me refer to him both as Johnson and Johnston throughout this episode, this is why. As far as him going AWOL, it does make sense. 
In the mid-19th century, there's a good chance he'd be sent to the gallows for physically assaulting a commanding officer. So him deserting and changing his name is all very believable, at least to me. The big questions are, when exactly did this happen? When did he finally make it to the Rocky Mountains? And what the hell was he up to in between? The Carbon County Democrat out of Montana is at least one source that stated that Johnson was in service during the Mexican-American War, which took place between 1846 and 1848. This, of course, is in direct contradiction to the story of him already being in the mountains and married to the Swan by this time. As far as I know, nobody knows for sure that Johnson jumped ship in San Francisco either. However, the Navy did enter the San Francisco Harbor during the war as victors on July 9, 1847. This could possibly have been when he deserted, or it could have been much later. Something I found very interesting, researcher Dorman Nelson says that Johnson was still at sea as late as 1858. And there's new research that reveals that Johnson may have been serving as a scout in Oregon in the late 1850s under General George Wright and his 9th Infantry. Now, with all this said, Johnson was supposedly one of the first gold seekers in Montana, in the areas of Bannock and Alder Gulch, where gold was discovered in 1862. And this lines up with Johnson himself claiming to have first set foot in Montana in 1862. And him being in the Navy as late as 1858 or serving as a scout in Oregon lines up with the story of him, as told by others, of having come to Montana from the coast. All right, sorry if all of that was boring or confusing. I just wanted to establish a little bit of a backstory on the man. Even though some of it just seems to be mere speculation and I haven't personally seen all the documents that these claims are based on, it does seem a whole hell of a lot more believable and substantiated than the other version put forth in Crow Killer. Fortunately, like I said, we do have a much clearer idea about what the man got up to once he reached Montana, and it becomes a little bit easier to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And while there's no record of Johnson striking it rich in the gold diggings of Alder Gulch, there are plenty of records of his time spent in the Union Army during the Civil War. Johnson left Montana and ventured on down to Benton Barracks, Missouri, where he enlisted in February of 1864 and served out the remainder of the war the next 18 months as a scout with Company H of the 3rd Colorado Cavalry. I have to pronounce the word cavalry like this because I'm tired of people telling me that I'm saying it wrong. Cav. And during the war, Johnson's unit basically helped protect the Kansas border and chase after Bloody Bill and Quantrell and their guerrillas. By the way, military records list Johnson as being 5 foot 11 and a half inches tall. This may have been taller than average at the time, but it kind of does squash the whole physical giant of a man legend. You know, he was a big guy, sure, but he weren't no giant. And when he enlisted, he did list his age as being 33 years old. This points towards 1831 as being the year of his birth as opposed to 1824. In the book The Never Any Lives, author DJ Herda writes that Johnson lied about his age upon enlisting because his actual real age, 39, was too old for military service. Now, I'm not sure where Mr. Herda is getting this from. I did try to find out what the maximum age was to enlist in the Union Army, and I came up short. I couldn't get a definitive answer. But there's no way 39 was too old especially towards the end of the war. I got to assume they were just taking every able-bodied man they could get their hands on. Even if there was a limit, I don't know, man. 39 just seems a bit too young for the cutoff point. I have a hard time believing that. Either way, Johnson did enlist and almost immediately went AWOL. Again, just like he did back in the Navy. Why? Not enough livers. That's why. He was told by his recruiter that he'd get at least one crow liver per day. And did they provide said livers? No, they did not. 
They try to feed him nothing but fat back and corn dodgers, thus forcing Johnson to desert and go in search of human livers in an attempt to quench his insatiable hunger for mortal flesh. No, that's not true. Uh, he was listed as a deserter shortly after enlisting, but not for too long. Turns out this wasn't that uncommon. And I personally have an ancestor who's also listed as a deserter during the Civil War. And he, just like Johnson, appeared on the very next muster roll as present. Now, I've read and heard that sometimes these temporary desertions took place when there wasn't a whole lot of anything going on. And that sometimes soldiers would return home, plow their fields, see their families, and then head on back to their units. As far as Johnson goes, I have no idea what he was up to. But just like my ancestor, he was quickly back with his company and neither one of them appeared to have ever faced any sort of punishment. By October of that same year, Johnson saw his first action, at least of this war, in the battles of Westport and Newtonia, Missouri, during which he was wounded twice, taking a rebel ball in both his shoulder and his leg. The shoulder wound in particular would dog him for the rest of his life. And thanks to military records, we know exactly what other ailments Johnson suffered from during the war. Other than being shot twice, he contracted a fever and the ague, then constipation and conjunctivitis, and more constipation and more conjunctivitis. Now, we all know what constipation means, but conjunctivitis is a fancy way of saying pink eye, which, according to records, Johnson got four times between March and December of 1864. Looks like Livery and Johnson had an issue with scratching his booty hole and then rubbing his eyes. Old itchy butt Johnson. The ague, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is a malarial fever, which he contracted in March of 64. Now, I don't know if he actually had malaria or that's just what they called the fever and the chills that were ailing him. Either way, it shows how shitty, literally, the conditions were in those Civil War camps. A lot of soldiers on both sides died from diseases unrelated to combat. Got to imagine Johnson couldn't wait to get back to the clean, crisp air of Montana, which is exactly what he did once he was honorably discharged at the war's end in 1865. Heading back to God's country and doing a little bit of gold prospecting and trapping, as well as working at various times as a teamster between Fort Benton and Helena. He also took to being a woodhawk at this time. Remember in the movie Jeremiah Johnson when Bear Claw tells Jeremiah that he can cut wood and leave it up on the Judith and that the riverboat captains will leave him gold? A good thing to know when times gets hard. That was Woodhawking that Bear Claw was referring to. Woodhawks would cut, split, and sell wood to steamships headed up the Missouri River. It was this wood that was burned in the ship's firebox that created the steam that powered the paddle wheels. Uh, according to the website that I forgot to bookmark, my bad, a trip from Louisville, Kentucky to New Orleans would burn 504 cords of wood. And in the year 1840, nearly 900,000 cords were cut and sold just in the areas where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers meet. Profitable, yet hard work. Out west in Montana territory, Woodhawking wouldn't have just been hard work, but dangerous as well, especially in 1865 and especially smack dab in the middle of hostile country, which the upper Missouri at the mouth of the Muscle Shell, where Johnson had his camp, most definitely was in those days. This was Lakota territory, and this was also around the same time as Red Cloud's War and the Fetterman Massacre. Guys that looked like Johnson just wouldn't have been too popular on the upper Missouri. According to the U.S. Secretary of War, at least seven Woodhawkers were killed by Native Americans just in the summer of 1868 alone. And God only knows how many others rode out and were just never seen again. Even the always courageous Livery and Johnson would say that during this time, he, quote, slept with both eyes chalk wide open, which made me wonder, you know, if it was so dangerous, how'd he make it? You know, how does one survive numerous attempts on their lives by a highly motivated foe that greatly outnumbers you? 
Johnson was lucky and he was tough, but those two attributes are only going to get you so far. I think he kind of had to be, as the outlaw Josie Wells once said, just plumb mad dog mean. Or you ever heard that saying, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for I am the evilest son of a bitch in the valley. Well, that was Liver Eaton Johnson in a nutshell. We may not know a whole hell of a lot about his younger years, and a lot of the stories of his exploits are greatly exaggerated, but the man's reputation as a relentless and brutal fighter did come honest, and it did come in those early days as a woodhawk. As you'll soon see, Johnson was one of these guys that not only relished a good fight, but really did not seem to know the meaning of the word fear. Furthermore, he never lost a moment's worth of sleep worrying about killing the hostile Native Americans upon whose land he was trespassing. And it was there, working as a woodhawk on the upper Missouri, that Johnson would finally earn his livery nickname. And it didn't have a damn thing to do with the crow. It seems that one day in the year 1868, he and about 15 other men were set upon by a few hundred Lakota, and they had themselves a good old-fashioned fight. Things got a little hairy at one point, and Johnson sunk his trademark Bowie knife into a warrior's side. Story goes that when he pulled the blade out, a little piece of liver came with it. Johnson then proceeded to hold it up, show it to his friends, and loudly ask if anybody wanted a taste before he then pretended to run the blade across his mouth. Thus, a legend and a nickname were born. Years later, and on several occasions, Johnson denied ever eating anybody's liver. He said that was a damn lie. And as far as that piece of liver coming out on a knife blade, well, he said that was unintentional on his part. But it wasn't just a liver incident or Johnson's actions during that fight, but what happened after that really caused his legend to blossom. According to him, they killed about 30 warriors. And not only did they scalp them, which was pretty common in those days, but they also dismembered them, cutting off their arms and legs. Then they cut off the ears and pickled them. And finally, they removed the heads, boiling them clean and placing the skulls on top of pikes with phrases written underneath like, on the reservation at last, or Horace Greeley knows I'm here. The mutilation of the dead Lakota wasn't completely without precedent. If you do any reading on the so-called Indian Wars, you'll see many accounts of the Native Americans doing the same thing to soldiers or settlers they have to get their hands on or other natives from enemy tribes. It's sort of the ultimate insult. You know, you take your enemy's eyes so they can't see in the afterlife. You take their legs or their arms so they can't walk or harm you in the next world. And sometimes it's a way of sending a message. You know, one of the theories about why the Comanche down in Texas were so brutal was that it was their way of sending the message, stay out of our land. Then there's that story of the trader who refused to help out some starving Sioux, telling him to go eat grass. Well, when they found the man's dead body after the Sioux got finished with him, his mouth was stuffed full of grass. That's a message. Then there's the story of Custer, whose inner ears were pierced with needles after he was killed, in the hopes that maybe he'd listen better in the next world. That's a message. And these messages were sometimes sent by the mountain men as well. I'm currently reading an excellent book called My 60 Years on the Plains, Trapping, Trading, and Indian Fighting by William Thomas Hamilton. And in the book, Hamilton describes an incident that occurred while he was on a fur trading expedition in the early 1840s. He and his party were being constantly harassed by this one tribe trying to steal from them, and eventually the same band just out and out attacked the trappers. They were able to drive the war party away, and then, after some discussion, they took the bodies of the dead warriors, piled them up, and burned them. The message they were sending was loud and clear. Do not fuck with us. This was the same message that Livery and Johnson, some 20 years later, was conveying with all those skulls on top of those poles, just in case any other Lakota war parties thought they might want to try to attack his little woodhawking camp. And as time went on, due to a variety of other reasons, Johnson did supposedly earn himself a reputation among both the Lakota and the Blackfeet as a man not to be trifled with. Reasons we'll get to in a moment. 
But first, just how many men did Liver Eaton Johnson really kill? In The Avenging Fury of the Plains, author Dennis McClellan writes, quote, During his prime, he, Johnson, had the reputation of being in more Indian battles than anyone of his day. It was said that Johnston had taken over 1,200 scalps over his frontier career. This author does not think it an exaggeration. Johnston's confidence in his abilities, his incomparable woodland skills, his bravado, and his utter disdain for his numberless foe propelled him to greatness among mountain men and made him a legitimate object of fear and awesome respect to Indians. End quote. All right, fair enough. And I know I'm no author, and I don't mean any disrespect to Mr. McClelland, but this podcaster does think 1,200 scalps is an exaggeration. Who the hell kills 1,200 people? Not even Rambo killed that many people. Yeah, that's right, I checked. The fictional super soldier of the silver screen only killed 552 people on film. And that was with machine guns and helicopters and exploding arrows. Even if you evenly space out 1,200 killings over the course of 20 years, that comes out to like five people a month. I did an episode a long time ago on the Bender family of Kansas. They were legit serial killers, and as a group, they only killed like 20-something people. Boone Helm, a damn murderous cannibal who, unlike Livery and Johnson, really did eat a man's leg, didn't even kill 20 people, much less 1,200. John Wesley Harden, most likely a psychopath, might have killed like, what, 40 people? So this got me to thinking... Who's the one person in history, you know, one single individual, barring a dictator, of course, who killed the most people? And it looks like it was this guy by the name of Vasily Blokin. He was Joseph Stalin's chief executioner, and he was recorded as having killed tens of thousands of prisoners by his own hand, including 7,000 Polish prisoners of war just in the year 1940 alone. This lunatic had an execution room with padded soundproof walls and a sloping concrete floor with a drain in which he fulfilled his quota of 300 kills per night. It should come as no surprise that he eventually sank into alcoholism and mental illness, which resulted in suicide. So, you know, that was a fun little rabbit hole to go down. But that's an extreme example of a truly evil person who, while he himself wasn't a dictator, was acting on behalf of one and thus had the resources that come with such a position. But Liver Eaton Johnson was just a frontiersman. I don't think he was evil or psychotic, and he damn sure didn't have a padded kill room or the full force of the military or government behind him. Still, I can almost hear it now, just someone just furiously typing away, leaving me a very angry comment on YouTube right now, defending Johnson's overinflated body count. So please, allow me to put it in perspective just a little more. And let's have a little fun while we're at it. Life's too short, and some of y'all be taking things way too seriously. Okay, so I mentioned Rambo's body count and how it didn't come close to the body count of Liver Eaton Johnson. Well, how about not just Rambo, but all of Sylvester Stallone's characters combined? The Expandables, Judge Dredd, Demolition Man, Cobra, etc. Surely it comes out to a higher body count than that of Johnson. Nope. Try again. All of Stallone's on-screen kills only total 786. All right, so if not Stallone, then who? Who in the fictional made-up world of movies has killed more people than Liver Eaton Johnson? Of the top 15 actors whose characters have done the most killing, Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson come in last. Combined, they only have a body count of 825. Next up is Jean-Claude Van Damme, 457. Then comes Chuck Norris with 458. Fucking pussy compared to Liver Eaton Johnson. Next up is crazy-ass Nicolas Cage with 563 kills. And Wesley Snipes with 564. I won't bore y'all with the entire list, but you get the picture. Jason Statham, Steven Seagal, Schwarzenegger, Dolph Lundgren. The type of actors who star in movies with the most ridiculous and unrealistic scenarios involving magic guns that don't require reloading, 
outrageous explosions, car chases, fancy spy gear, and martial arts skills that defy the laws of physics, yet none of them in all of their movies killed as many people as Liv and Johnson did with just a simple black-powdered 50 caliber Hawking rifle. To actually find an actor whose characters are so ridiculously bloodthirsty and unbelievable that they surpass Johnson's supposed body count of 1,200, you have to go down the list to Mila Jovovic in the bizarro Resident Evil world. Now, in all actuality, Johnson himself stated that he was involved in over 40 fights with Native Americans and that he never killed a white man, not even a Frenchman. Now, this seems a tad bit more believable, don't you think? Remember, this was real life. Nobody was waking up each and every morning and getting into gunfights. Not in Tombstone, not in Texas, and not on the Montana frontier. For someone like Johnson who spent time in wild places during a very wild time and was employed by an army who was actively pursuing hostile or presumed hostile Native Americans, 40 fights sounds about right. And it passes the smell test. It is true, however, that Johnson was no timid snowflake when it came to killing. Unlike the reluctant Jeremiah Johnson who refused to join Del Gu in taking those Blackfeet scalps, no one ever had to tell Livery and Johnson twice. And asked later in life about why he killed so many natives, he said, quote, During those early days out here, somebody had to be licked all the time. And after the fight was over, somebody had to be dead. All right, well, there you go. Johnson didn't just stick those skulls up on poles to scare away future war parties. It wasn't just a warning. Seems our Mr. Liver Eater also liked to shock and get a rise out of tenderfeet. Many a steamboat passenger found themselves aghast when they rounded a bend on the Missouri and saw Johnson standing there amongst the grinning skulls wild-haired and whiskey-drunk and bare-assed. Yes, bare-assed. I found two separate accounts describing Johnson's total disdain for covering his nether regions, one of which goes, quote, his entire attire consisted of a scant, much-shrunken red undershirt reaching just below his hips, and that his matted hair and brushy beard fluttered in the breeze. The other account said that as he would stand alone on the riverbank and watch the boats, his, quote, costume generally consisted of one shirt, ballooned up by the wind, and whiskey-soaked, burr-matted beard. And it went on to say that he never acknowledged the need for trousers, except in the wintertime. You know, at first, it was hard to imagine Liv Reed and Johnson without picturing Robert Redford. At least it was for me. But then the more I read about this guy and imagined him standing there on the shore, half-decked and looking like some sort of wild man, whiskey dripping from his beard and surrounded by scores of sun-bleached skulls and dried scalps, I started to see him as more of a Cormac McCarthy meets Apocalypse Now meets Jeff Bridges' a drunken rooster Cogburn-like character. I'm convinced part of it was just for show. I think Johnson really did like to shock people. The other part of it was a strong case of not giving a damn. Had he wanted to live like a civilized gentleman and be burdened with their societal norms, he'd have stayed his ass in New Jersey. For better or for worse, Johnson was a free man, walking this earth exactly as he pleased, come what may. I guess there's a lot to be said about that. By the way, those ears he pickled would be sold to passengers on the steamboats once they recovered from their shock. And curiously enough, it was the female passengers who bought most of these grim trophies. Make of that what you will. Look, I'm not trying to say that all women are sociopaths, but they sure do like watching TV shows like Dexter and all those Lifetime movies where the jilted woman always gets away with murder. So uh, I'm just saying. Johnson would eventually get a little bit more creative, some might say efficient, in his various killing methods. There's at least one instance that's repeated so often, I have to believe it's at least partly true, where the liver eater poisoned some food with strychnine and left it as bait. Some Lakota warriors coming upon it and thinking they were stealing his food, ate it, and they all died. There's another story where he did the same with the Blackfeet. 
Another less believable but oft-repeated tell is how he always had secret passageways underneath his cabins, allowing him a place to hide or a way to sneak out without being seen. After that poisoning incident, the Lakota were so incensed with Johnson that they came at him full force and basically had him under siege in his own cabin. He eventually ran out of food and would sneak out at night to secure more. After one of these foraging trips, he came back to find that several warriors were inside of his cabin. So he opened up fire on them all of a sudden, taking them by surprise. Those who could flee attempted to do so, but he was able to pull at least one back inside and began ripping and mutilating the body apart with his teeth and drinking of the warrior's blood. I highly doubt this actually ever happened, but I wonder, you know, did Johnson or any of his friends ever purposely spread these lies just to further build up his reputation as a man not to be messed with? Possibly, you know, or maybe they were just entertaining themselves. Mountain men were notorious liars when they spoke to pilgrims. Pilgrims, by the way, being anyone who wasn't one of them. The stories that these wild men used to tell around campfires and at the trapper's rendezvous are legendary. Oh, I forgot to mention, Johnson also used a scope on his rifle. A not-so-common thing back in those days that would only increase his already lethal accuracy. And he himself would often speak of a story of how he laid in ambush and picked off Indians from a distance as they tried to flee. With all of these things combined, you know, Johnson's lack of fear, his brutality when it came to the bodies of his fallen enemies, his ruthlessness in continuing to fire on fleeing enemies, his accuracy while doing so, and his willingness to go places oftentimes alone, it's no wonder he gained a certain amount of mythology. And add on a bunch of highly exaggerated stories, boom, got yourself a legend. Also, you got to imagine that as time would progress and after several retellings, each story would get a little bit more inflated. He was wild and he fought hard and ruthless and by his own set of rules, for sure. And whoever was around to witness it, for sure, took extra liberties in retelling the stories. Anyway, it was a reputation that quickly grew. From about 1869 to 1873, Johnson took a break from woodhawking and started selling bootleg whiskey. By this time, his home base was Fort Benton, located on the upper Missouri, about 40 miles northeast of the present-day town of Great Falls, Montana. And Fort Benton was first established in 1846 as a fur trading post and became part of the overland link between the Missouri and Columbia Rivers. For a good 30-year period, it was a stopping-off place for steamboats carrying people from far and wide. Gamblers, traders, miners, big city dudes, preachers, and whores. And there were also plenty of Native Americans conducting trade in the vicinity as well. If you want to get a good idea of life at Fort Benton, please check out the book My Life as an Indian by James Willard Schultz. It's his true account of his time spent there, living with, and eventually marrying into the Blackfeet tribe. Amazing book, one of my favorites. And after researching this episode, I know for a fact that Schultz would have at very least known of Liver Eaton Johnson. More than likely, though, the two men knew each other. So if I have time, I really want to go back and reread that book again and see if I can make the connection. A lot of the names of real people were changed purposely by Schultz, so nobody got implicated or got their feelings hurt. But yeah, definitely going to revisit that book and find out. Give it a read if you get a chance. Many of the men who resided at Fort Benton would either trade for furs to the local tribes or organize fur trapping expeditions themselves out in the wilderness. And I'm sure Johnson did both of these as well. By the way, all these things I mentioned him doing for a living, you know, the teamster work and the woodhawking and even later on the scouting, one constant was that he was always trapping as well. Trapping and hunting were always kind of his bread and butter. Also, just real quick, since we're talking about trapping, I do want to mention that all this fur trapping and trading I'm speaking of and Johnson's time on the frontier all took place after what we think of when we think of the classic mountain man or fur trapping days. Guys like Jim Bridger, Kit Carson, uh, Broken Hand Fitzpatrick, Beckworth, Jed Smith, Old Bill Williams. These guys all came west back in the 1820s and 30s. 
that's when the beaver fell hats were all the rage in Europe and back east, and these men were getting top dollar for their hides. By the time the liver eater made it to Montana, those days were long gone. There were already a ton of forts and towns popping up, stage lines, farms, settlers, and railroads, and all that kind of jazz. Even if you still want to hang on to the idea that Johnson ventured out to the frontier in 1843, like the book Crow Killer claims, this would still be after the prime beaver trapping days. There were still beaver, of course, and you could still sell the hides. But they weren't getting top dollar, and you didn't even have your mountain man rendezvous anymore by this point. By the mid-1840s, a lot of your former trappers had already begun transitioning into traders or guides and scouts. Just wanted to throw that out there. As far as Johnson's whiskey selling operations go, this took him up the infamous Whoop-Up Trail, crossing Blackfeet land and on up into Alberta, Canada. Not only was this just as dangerous as being a woodhawk, but it was also illegal as hell. There's at least one account of a U.S. Marshal and a troop of cavalry attempting to arrest Johnson while he was peddling his liquor. Much like Wyatt Earp in the movie Tombstone, Johnson let the lawman know that he wasn't in the mood to be arrested that day. A standoff ensued and the marshal went home empty-handed. After that, Johnson's little whiskey-selling camp on the Belly River became known as Fort Standoff. Now, this whiskey was typically hauled on the back of mules or via wagons in five-gallon kegs. Most whiskey smugglers would travel at night and lay low during the day, probably out of fear of both the local natives and the army. This whiskey would be purchased in Montana for three bucks a gallon and then sold in Canada for five times that amount. Now, I had never heard of the Whoop-Up Trail previously. Check it out if you get a chance. There was even a fort up there in Alberta called Fort Whoop-Up. It was basically just a liquor trading stronghold. They'd sell whiskey spiked with ginger, molasses, red pepper, and even chewing tobacco to the local tribes. And from what I read, at least, this illegal operation was part of the reason that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were formed. Really interesting stuff, but also really sad when you consider the lasting devastation that alcohol had on the First Nations and indigenous people of North America. You know, even today, per an article I found on recovery.org, Native Americans have some of the highest rates of alcohol and drug abuse among minority groups. Obviously, and unfortunately, this wasn't very much of a concern to those guys making money off of whiskey at this time. As you can imagine, with all of Johnson's wanderings that he undertook while out on these money-making ventures, he got to know Montana territory pretty well. This led to scouting opportunities. You know, if there was some place you wanted to go, he'd be the man to get you there. In 1874, he and a buddy guided a group of gold prospectors into the Bighorn Mountains. And as with dang near every chapter of Johnson's life, this one comes rife with exaggerated stories of Indian killings. The legend is they fought off hostiles every single day for three whole months and only lost one man the entire time. They, of course, accounted for well over 100 dead warriors. Once again, this is just one of those situations where I'm sure the trip happened and I'm sure they were even attacked at one point, if not multiple times. I'm also sure that the stories of these attacks were told and retold around campfires and drinking establishments until they grew to mythical proportions. As famed Western director John Ford once said, quote, if it didn't happen this way, it should have happened this way. A sentiment that I'm positive Livereen Johnson would have agreed with. By the time 1876 rolled around, Johnson signed on with General Nelson A. Miles. Now, I don't know the exact date he got hired, but he was employed as a civilian scout a few months after Custer's defeat at the Battle of Little Bighorn. It was also at this time that Johnson was living at the Crow Agency in Stillwater, Montana. Ah, yes, the Crow again. Unlike the tall tale saying that Johnson went to war with the Crow for two decades, there is actual evidence that he was friends with the tribe. You know, like the fact that he was living with them. And although Johnson would deny it, I'd put money on him even having a Crow lady friend or two. He would go on record with the newspaper in 1884 saying, quote, I deny that I am or ever was a squaw man, 
or ever kept a squaw wife or otherwise. Any statement to the contrary is a malicious falsehood. Whoa, slow down, Johnson. Methinks thou doth protest too much. There's an interesting story, not sure how credible it is, but still interesting, about how some soldiers with the 7th Cavalry approached a Crow camp one day and made some less than polite remarks about taking some, quote, squaws for their own use. One of the ladies got really agitated about this and told them in English and in no uncertain terms that she belonged to Livereen Johnson. Furthermore, if you read Crow Killer, they claim that the swan was the daughter of a flathead chief named Bear's Head. Only thing is, there's no record of there being a flathead chief with that name. There is, however, a record of there being a crow chief named Bear's Head and around the same time that Johnson was living with the tribe. Now, I don't know why Johnson would deny having a crow wife if he did have one. And, you know, I can't prove that he ever had one. But you got to admit, it does seem likely. Also, I should point out that a lot of white men, some of whom that had wives back east, would take Native American wives temporarily, even just for a winter or two. When they felt like moving on, they'd simply send the lady packing back to her family with some gifts or presents to soothe any hurt feelings. And I guess back then, the idea of a white man having a Native American wife, unfortunately, was sometimes looked down upon. So, I don't know. As you'll soon hear, Johnson did take to living in town later on in life. Maybe if he did have a Native American wife at one point, his denying it later was a way of him trying to fit in or be more accepted by the, quote, civilized folk. But right now, we're talking about the mid-1870s, and the man was still half-wild and living among the crow. Anyway, back to General Miles. Johnson was scouting for the good general in the late fall, early winter of 76 and 77, when they caught up to Crazy Horse and his little band of fighters. A battle ensued, and several soldiers and one Lakota warrior were killed. As for Johnson, he captured a warrior and a female during this skirmish. Now see, that's a little bit more realistic, right? The army catches up with the Sioux, a fight breaks out, there are some casualties, but no dramatics or crazy stories about a six foot seven liveryan Johnson karate kicking dozens of warriors to death or drinking anybody's blood. Like I said, this was shortly after the Battle of Little Bighorn or the Greasy Grass fight, and that was really the last hurrah for the Lakota. After the fight, the large village broke up into many smaller bands, and a lot of them headed back to the reservation. Still, though, there were about 600 warriors out on the loose, including Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. And during that winter, Miles, with Jonathan scouting for him, led a relentless campaign that forced more of the Lakota and Cheyenne to either surrender or flee into Canada. It was during one such skirmish in December of 1876 when the liver eater almost went under. He poked his head up a little too high and a Lakota bullet skipped the top of it. Luckily for him, all he got out of the deal was probably a pretty nasty headache. Over the course of that winter, Johnson would participate in the battles of Muddy Creek, Bark Creek, Cedar Creek, Ash Creek, and Spring Creek. No word on whether or not he also took part in the bloody battles of Dawson's Creek or Schitt's Creek. That following summer, Johnson would continue to scout in what would become known as the Nez Perce War. Just like all so-called Indian Wars, this one started due to white incursion on native land. The Nez Perce, just like the Crow, had always been friendly. It's commonly believed, had it not been for the Nez Perce, that the men of the Lewis and Clark expedition would have probably starved. Anyway, the Nez Perce refused to give up their ancestral land and moved to a reservation. The U.S. government had previously ceded the tribe 7.5 million acres per the Walla Walla Treaty of 1855, but then they, the government, crawfished on the deal. Clashes with local settlers ensued, including many aggressions, until finally violence broke out. Some young Nez Perce went on a raid and killed a few settlers, and that was all it took. The war was on. The tribe attempted to seek refuge with the Crow, you know, Livery and Johnson's in-laws. But when that didn't work out, they made a desperate 1,700-mile flight across Montana in order to hook up with old Sitting Bull up there in Canada. 
the military and Johnson hot on their trail. And more often than not, the peaceful Nez Perce laid an ass whooping on the army every single time they got too close. One trooper after the battle at White Bird Canyon said, quote, I have been in a lot of scrapes, but I never went up against anything like the Nez Perce in all my life. The Nez Perce, just like the Lakota from the previous winter, were fleeing with their families. And all these people needed food to eat, and they had to stop and rest. It must have been hell knowing that you either walk your grandma to death or you stop and risk letting the army kill her. Still, though, they made it within 40 miles of the Canadian border before finally surrendering. If you're looking to learn more about this conflict, check out the episode I did on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. Link in the show notes. A truly fascinating and heartbreaking slice of history. Interesting side note. A new nickname appeared in print for Johnson during his time scouting in the Nez Perce War. In addition to his usual liver-eating moniker, he was also referred to as Slippery Dick. Yes, Slippery Dick Johnson. Now, I'm not making that up. I couldn't figure out the genesis of this particular nickname, but I did turn to the internet to find out exactly what a Slippery Dick is. Turns out it's a species of ocean-dwelling fish mostly found in the western Atlantic. They swim as if dragging their tails, and adults may grow to a length of 8 inches. And I can only speak for myself here, but 8 inches sounds about right. According to the Urban Dictionary, Slippery Dick refers to the act of going back to a guy with a good dick who happens to be a, quote, fuckboy. As in, don't date him again, because he's a slippery dick. Okay, I'm glad we cleared that up. Moving forward. Once the Nez Perce surrendered in October of 1877, the Indian Wars were pretty much over in Montana. And so were Livery and Johnson's days as an Indian fighter, for the most part. Because Johnson was a civilian scout, he wasn't there every step along the way chasing after Chief Joseph. He also spent some of that time scouting against the Cheyenne people as well. And in between scouting jobs, he would continue to hunt and trap. Finally, by the spring of 1878, Johnson could be found selling wolf hides at the Hoskin and McGill Stagecoach and Trading Post, not far from the present-day town of Huntley, Montana. Back then, a good wolf hunter, or wolfer as they were called, could kill 60 wolves a day with poison bait and bring in over $3 per hide. That's pretty good money. Even just 20 hides would bring you the equivalent of like $1,500 in today's money. But good money or not, wolf hunters were looked down on by a lot of folks, as they still are. In the book, A History of Montana, Helen Sanders wrote, quote, The vagabond wolfers, like the worst type of early trappers and later hide hunters, caroused, led licentitious lives, and created trouble with the Indians, end quote. Now, I looked up licentitious, and it means the lack of legal or moral restraints and a disregard for the strict rules of correctness. So yeah, sounds like the definition fits. Something tells me that Johnson didn't care too much what anybody named Helen thought of his occupation. Between 1879 and 1882, nobody really knows what Johnson was up to, but you could assume it was more of the same, hunting and trapping. His scouting days are over, but there's a chance he might have done some guide work during this time. There's also evidence that he worked a stagecoach between Pease and Billings. By November of 1882, a 52-ish year old John Johnson finally kind of sort of settled down in the town of Colson, Montana, and took a job as a deputy and justice of the peace. According to the book, The Avenging Fury of the Plains, by the time Johnson was sworn in, there had already been 25 shooting deaths there in Colson since its founding. So we're talking a for real Wild West town. And just like any good Wild West town, Colson boasted of a telegraph office, some general stores, a post office, a dance hall, a whole bunch of saloons, and zero churches. Colson is now a ghost town, but it was founded in 1877, just a mile away from present-day Billings, Montana, which itself was founded in 1882. Billings soon became a railroad hub, and most of Colson's inhabitants ended up just moving over there. 
and Johnson would keep the peace in the area up until about 1884. His preferred way of taking care of lawbreakers? Eating their damn livers. Between the years of 1882 and 1884, Deputy John Johnson carved out and consumed an estimated 19 livers from criminals guilty of everything from murder all the way down to lowly jaywalkers. What nobody safe when old Slippery Dick Johnson got him a hankering for that liver. Uh, no, actually Johnson mostly kept the peace with his fists, doling out knuckle sandwiches. How come nobody says knuckle sandwich anymore, man? We need to bring that one back. Anyway, Johnson. He was getting old, but he was still a big, tough son of a bitch. And the story goes that he knocked out more than one lawbreaker with just one single punch. By the way, his hands were described as being as large as a bushel of Montana hay. Whatever that means. Some say Johnson was so good at keeping the peace that he kind of got in trouble over it. Turns out instead of just smacking people around, he was supposed to arrest them and send them to jail where they could then await trial and be forced to pay the appropriate fines and court costs. After a while, the sheriff came to Colson to find out why Johnson hadn't sent nobody. And the liver eater replied simply that if, you know, the boys got to fighting, he just bangs their heads together and it settles them right down. Ain't no use in arresting them, he said. I guess I can keep the peace among these pilgrims. One such example of how good he was with the fisticuffs, and of course, take this with a grain of salt, came in the form of a professional boxer. Seems that pugilists would travel to Billings and put on fighting expeditions. One saloon thought it'd be a good idea to have Johnson square up with one of these pros, and not one to back down, the liver eater agreed. And the boxer probably didn't have any problem with it either. You know, he was probably like 20 years younger than Johnson, and all he saw was what looked to be a broken down, gray-haired old man. Feared it'd be an easy day's work. Well, he figured wrong. To the boxer's dismay and the crowd's enjoyment, old, decrepit John Johnson made quick work of the so-called professional. I guess they don't teach mountain fighting over there in them fancy boxing schools. And I don't know what that means. Uh, that, that just came out of my mouth. Anyway, that was the extent of Johnson's boxing career, but it was not the last of him putting on a good show. By 1884, he left Colson and joined up with the Hardwick's Wild West Show, one of the many Old West circus-type shows that formed around this time. This one wouldn't last too long, though. Hardwick's went bankrupt after a few months, and Johnson had to find his way back to Montana, all the way from Chicago. Before things went bust, he was appearing with several Crow warriors, including Curly, Custer's old scout. There were also cowboys, and even the notorious Calamity Jane was part of the show. Now, Johnson's part was appropriately dubbed the Avenging Fury of the Plains, and always depicted him fighting those Crow warriors. This could possibly be where the whole Crow killer fairy tale originated. By September of 1885, Johnson was back in Montana and he was supposed to lead a group of French nobility on a hunting trip to Wyoming, but he came down sick with a case of mountain fever. Now, I had to Google this and it looks like it was Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. According to the Center of Disease Control, the Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, or RMSF for short, is a bacterial disease spread through the bite of an infected tick. Most people who got sick with RMSF will have a fever, headache, and a rash. RMSF can be deadly if not treated early with the right antibiotics. It currently kills around 0.5% of people who get it. But before the antibiotic tetracycline was invented in 1940, it killed one out of every 10. Sounds pretty serious, and evidently it put Johnson on his ass at least long enough for him to miss out on that guiding job. Or was he faking it because he knew there was no way he could spend weeks on the trail with a bunch of uppity French noblemen? Can you imagine that? Forget hunting, the antelope and the elk would be able to smell their little snide French smugness miles away. Oh, parlez-vous, sacré bleu, beaucoup, great poupon. Oui? Uh, yeah, that is the extent of uh, my French. By 1887, a fully recuperated Johnson found himself Frenchman free, but knee-deep in a dispute between a group of crow and the citizens of Billings. 
Seems trouble was brewing in the form of a medicine man named Swordbearer and a couple hundred of his followers. Word was, they were planning a raid on Billings. This led Johnson to bring that deadly rifle and fight know-how of his to town in order to help protect all them helpless pilgrims just in case things kicked off. And aw yeah, fight, fight, fight. Here we go, finally getting down to where Johnson becomes the infamous crow killer, consumer of red livers. Uh, not exactly. Turns out Swordbearer was killed by a fellow Native American about a month after, and nothing ever came of the whole incident. Sorry, still no bloodshed between Johnson and the friendly crow. He himself soon became engaged in an altogether different type of battle, though. But first, let's just take a real quick break on Livery and Johnson so I can tell y'all what I just received in the mail. Now, this is not a paid endorsement or advertisement. It's not even something that was asked for. I just got to give credit to where credit's due. Several episodes ago, I mentioned a guy, uh, Nicholas, from GSD Leather, who makes custom leather holsters and sheaths and all sorts of cool stuff. Well, he recently made me a custom sheath for one of my knives, and holy shit, it's perfect. If you're interested in some high-quality yet affordable custom leather products made in the USA, check out GSD Leather. I don't think he's got a website, but you can find him on Facebook and Instagram at GSD Leather. And that's G is in golf, S is in Sierra, and D is in damn. That's a nice-looking sheath. And I gotta say, man, uh, this sheath, I don't know, it's got me feeling some sort of way. I couldn't really put my finger on it, and then it dawned on me. Virile. I'm feeling very virile with this GSD custom leather sheath. I feel like just having this sheath within reaching distance, I might accidentally get a girl pregnant just by looking at her. Now, I'm not making any promises here, but if you and the little lady are wanting to make a baby, go ahead and get you a custom sheath by GSD Leather and put that bad boy under the damn bed and see what happens. Honestly, you don't even need a knife. This sheath is so beautiful, I'm sure you can find something to stick in it. Once again, that's GSD Leather on Facebook and Instagram. Go get you one and go make a baby. How will gray wolf introduction in Colorado affect the ungulate population? Which legislatures are pushing bad bills for wildlife? Will wildlife populations still be strong and abundant in 25 years? Hey everybody, I'm Seth with the eHunter podcast. If you've had any of those questions or one similar to it, I'd like to introduce you to the eHunter podcast. Host Taryn and myself work hard to bring the most up-to-date hunting and wildlife news. We talk to wildlife biologists and managers, industry leaders, and hunters to give our listeners a better understanding of how the world of hunting and wildlife conservation is going. Don't worry, though. It's not all just dry news reports. We always find a way to weave in some fun episodes as well. If the written word is more your style, be sure to check out the website at ehunter.com. The website is your go-to source for news articles, gear reviews, expert tips, and more. That's ehunter. E-H-U-N-T-R dot com. We hope you come and give us a listen and stay up to date on all things hunting and wildlife. We'll see you around. As my own father often says, it's hell getting old. And Livery and Johnson was really starting to fill his years. All that time spent in the icy rivers, those bullet wounds from the war, a hard life finally taking its toll. He had also developed, God help me with this pronunciation, erysipelas. It's a skin and tissue disease that causes painful lesions and inflammation. A doctor's 1889 notation of this condition, coupled with the gunshot wound in the shoulder, stated that Johnson was disabled from performing manual labor. He had also lost sight in his right eye and was suffering from hearing loss, probably due to all those dang guns going off for the past several decades. 
or possibly from hearing all the lies people constantly told about him. Either way, by 1884, he had begun receiving a military pension of $4 a month, but that amounted to next to nothing, only around 100 bucks in today's money. And here he is, not really physically able to do any work. He was a tough man, though, and a survivor. He got him a little plot of land and took to growing cabbages. Unfortunately, Johnson was a little too fond of his own crop, and we all know what eating too much cabbage can do to a man. Uh, no, actually, Johnson's cabbages brought such little profit that he just threw in the towel. Said he sweated over them cabbages all summer just for three cents a pound, declaring, quote, I'll go build me a cabin in the mountains where I can kill all I want to eat and I'll never have to work again, end quote. He packed up and left the Billings area and built him a tiny cabin on the Yellowstone River, a few miles from the town of Red Lodge, Montana. Believe it or not, even in his old age and even in his quickly deteriorating physical condition, he was asked by the people of Red Lodge to become the first constable of their little town, a job which he did without ever carrying a gun while on duty. Just like in Colson, Johnson would simply lay out any troublemakers with his big old gnarled, arthritic, liver-spotted fists. It's also there that he may have met the famous Buffalo Bill Cody. And let's just say that Johnson was not a big fan of Buffalo Bill. Thought he was a bit of a poser. You know, all hat, no cattle. Story goes that Cody had just stepped off a train and Johnson came up from behind and slapped him so hard on the back that Buffalo Bill's hat flew off. Johnson then yelled, Buffalo Bill, famous Indian fighter, huh? Only Indians you ever laid a hand on was a squaw. Now, Bill thought it was funny, or at least he pretended to, but I think he probably got the uh, drift that Johnson just didn't care for him too much. In Johnson's capacity there in Red Lodge as a lawman, he would help save at least one prisoner's life. The incident happened in June of 1894 when Frank Leadoff shot and killed Patrick Cannon in the saloon. Soon enough, an angry mob formed with the intent to lynch Frank, but Johnson snuck the man out of town until the citizens calmed their asses down or sobered up, or both. He then escorted the prisoner alive and well to the county seat to stand trial. Once again, Johnson showing that he wasn't easily frightened. In a time when a lot of lawmen would stand aside and allow the mob to string up the prisoner, he didn't. That's something. A year later, Johnson got a wild hair up his ass and decided to visit Tombstone, Arizona. No idea why or how long he was there. You know, maybe he just wanted to see some new country one last time. By the time he got back to Red Lodge, though, his health had gotten even worse. He couldn't even stand up straight thanks to rheumatism coupled with spinal scoliosis. In addition to all those other health problems I previously mentioned that were still troubling him. He took to spending more and more time taking dips in the hot springs to ease the pain, and he began spending more and more time in town rather than at his lonely cabin. The proud John Johnson finally got to the point where he had to rely on the kindness and charity of his friends just to live. He couldn't do any work at all, and his only income was the now-increased pension of $12 a month, or about $320 in today's money. But even still, he opened up his cabin to strangers in the winter of 1896. Some pilgrims were traveling all the way from Iowa and having a hard go of it. One of their cows had already died, and by the time they reached Red Lodge, they only had about $1 to spare between two families. They had nowhere to take refuge from the winter other than the covered wagons, and to top it all off, one of the females was pregnant and about ready to pop. Since Johnson was staying in town as opposed to his cabin, he opened it up for them. Actually gave it to them, really, and that's where the baby was safely born. Almost completely immobile by this point, Johnson spent much of 1899 at the Hunter Hot Springs. And if this is the same Hunter Hot Springs I found on Google Maps, uh, it appears to be some distance northwest from Red Lodge and east of Bozeman. There's a picture you might stumble on that features Liver Eaton Johnson there at Hunter Hot Springs. Also in the picture is Morgan and Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, Teddy Roosevelt, 
Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Bat Masterson, and Judge Roy Bean. Don't fall for it. This is a 100% fake pitcher. As far as Johnson's deteriorating health goes, his last pitching claim filed in November of 1899 details his ailments as follows. Quote, a progressive spinal scoliosis causes loss of power in limbs to the extent he is unable to arise or lie down and requires the aid of an attendant day and night. This disability is permanent, end quote. Shortly thereafter, a local newspaper reported that Johnson was bedridden and seeking care at the National Soldiers' Home in California, but that he didn't have the means to get there, meaning he didn't have the money, money that the county eventually did pony up along with an attendant to see him California safely. And then on December 9th, 1899, Johnson left his beloved Montana one final time, supposedly breaking down and weeping as the train left the station. Less than a month after arriving at the soldier's home there in Los Angeles, on January 21st, 1900, the great Livery and Johnson passed away at 69 years of age, or 76 if you like the 1824 birth year. Matter of fact, full disclosure, I did see uh, it was either on his death certificate or on a form from the old soldier's home that listed his age as 76, further confusing exactly when this man was born. Anyways, within 24 hours of his death, the liver eater was laid to rest in the West Los Angeles Cemetery with a marker that read John Johnston, Company H, 2nd Colorado Cavalry. And that's where he lay for the next seven decades, his grave just feet away from the busy San Diego freeway. Then, of course, in 1972, Jeremiah Johnson debuted on the big screen and picked the public's interest about the real-life liver eating Johnson. Two years later, in 1974, a junior high teacher by the name of Tri Robinson amazed his students with the stories of Johnson and how he avenged his flathead wife's murder by waging a one-man war on the crow. The students were impressed, and they understandably felt bad that Johnston, who you know they associated with Jeremiah Johnson, was buried there in California as opposed to his beloved Rocky Mountains, so they started a letter-writing campaign. They wrote so many letters that they finally were successful in getting John Johnson exhumed and shipped back up north. Only problem was, Johnson's former hometown of Red Lodge, Montana, didn't want any part of it. A local paper reported that, quote, The entire project borders on making a hero out of someone who was just an Indian fighter. And apparently the idea hasn't been that well received in Red Lodge. There's no doubt that he was a colorful figure in American history, but I think there are still mixed feelings here where so many Indians still live. Now, that was in 1974. To play devil's advocate, it's only fair to shed light as to why the citizens of Red Lodge might have felt this way. When Johnson was an older man, he did speak often with journalists. And what he said wasn't always the most politically correct. Once, when asked about his opinion of the Native Americans, Johnson replied, quote, Do I admire the noble red man? Not on your life. They can't fight and you can't make them work. One white man is as good a fighter as five Indians. If they can get you to running, then they are all right. But to stand up and face a white man, they will never do it. The only thing where an Indian is better than a white man is at eating and stealing. The government had better make them work more and take some of the charity they are giving to the Indians and help out the poor white man with his large families. End quote. Damn. Now that was just blatantly racist. Sounds like some your cousin Dale would post on Facebook after getting laid off at the cannon factory and one too many Miller High Lifes. Probably follow that up with another post ran about Jewish space lasers and how Tom Hanks is leading some sort of globalist pedophile ring. I know, different time, different situation, and you can't always judge historical figures with our modern day senses of morality. 
But still, you have to at least kind of get the hesitation on the part of Red Lodge, right? Especially if they did indeed have a large population of Native Americans living there. Why alienate their own neighbors over some guy that's been dead for over 70 years? Also kind of hypocritical on Johnson's part saying that the uh, Native Americans don't want to work. Every single thing that he did for a living, Native Americans also did. Hell, the Sioux even employed themselves as woodhawkers at times. For Johnson's entire life out west, he basically lived like a Native American. And oftentimes he lived with them. No telling how many times he sat down to have a meal in a teepee or how many Native women he cozied up with at night. And then just to kind of throw them under a bus like that. I don't know. Anyway, there was a compromise and Johnson did get reburied, just not in Montana. His final resting place was in Cody, Wyoming, the town named after the man that he couldn't stand. And the whole thing was a circus. When they opened up Johnson's casket, all that was left was a thigh bone and some teeth and some buttons. Then they had to guard these scant remains from body snatchers all the way from California to Wyoming. And then finally, on June 8th, 1974, John Livereaton Johnson was once again laid in the dirt. It might not have been Montana, but his gravesite does have a clear view to the mountains. There were 1,200 people that attended the ceremony, one of which was Robert Redford, the actor who played Jeremiah Johnson. He even served as a pallbearer and gave a nice little speech praising those junior high students. It also didn't hurt Warner Brothers' feelings any either. They were more than happy to further promote their film. And somewhere in the mix, someone got so damn excited, they put the name Jeremiah Johnson on the new gravestone. Shit you not. To this day, Johnson's grave reads, John Jeremiah Livereaton Johnston. Anyways, the grave was sealed with cement, and then later a fence was put around it as a deterrent to grave robbers. And don't you know that the good citizens of Red Lodge, once they started seeing all that publicity and got to figuring on how much tourist money they were missing out on, all of a sudden had a change of heart. Imagine that. They even filed suit to get Johnson's body dug up again so they could rebury him there in Red Lodge. Because, of course, that's what Johnson would have wanted. This attempt was deemed without merit by a presiding judge. And gotta wonder what Johnson would have thought about this whole damn ordeal. Love him or hate him, Livery and Johnson was an impressive man. A true survivalist, both in the wilderness and on the battlefield. A scout and a frontiersman respected by other more famous scouts and frontiersmen. A large man who became even larger after his death. In that sense, he sort of reminds me of Texas's own Bigfoot Wallace. Lots of legends and tall tales surrounding both men. Tales to which they both contributed their part. And they both outlived the wild times, doing a little bit too good of a job when it came to taming the Wild West. And I also, weirdly enough, think of Blue Duck from Lonesome Dove when I think of John Johnson. Remember what Blue Duck told Captain Call? I raped women and stole children and burned houses and shot men and run off horses and killed cattle and robbed who I pleased all over your territory. And you never even had a good look at me. Now, I know Johnson wasn't no blue duck, but he definitely did things his own way. He tried beaver, hunted buffalo, killed elk, sold whiskey, and took scalps all over Sioux and Blackfoot territory. And while I'm sure they had plenty of good looks at him, closest they ever got to putting his lights out was grazing his head with that bullet that one time. Livereen Johnson weren't no plaster saint. He was more of a drunken rooster Cogburn than he was a stoic Robert Redford. A crude man who, at times, did some very questionable things, possibly crossed the line between right and wrong, more than once. A guy who liked shocking the frail sensibilities of lowlanders and pilgrims. A fully human and fully flawed man who just happened to be one of the many tough men who came to embody the idea of the frontier. And that's about all I've got on Liver Eaton Johnson. If you're curious to learn more, please check out some of those books I mentioned. There's a lot of stuff I left out due to time constraints. I'd have loved to talk about Johnson's real-life partners like X Beadler or Yellowstone Kelly, 
as well as diving into more of the inconsistencies with certain aspects of his life. I'm hoping the research continues to be done on this guy and the new information continues to roll in. I also hope that I can finally talk to some of the experts and pick their brains. I would like more clarification on why they're so certain about different aspects of Johnson's life. And I will leave links in this episode's show notes to all of the books that I've mentioned. I didn't even have a chance to talk about Livery and Johnson's Rifle or a Knife, which are on display at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West Museum in Cody, Wyoming. But I will leave a link to an article on them as well. And you can decide for yourself whether or not they're the real deal. By the way, this is a re-release. I originally published a two-part series on Johnson back in March of 2021, and I thought I'd consolidate them into one full episode, touch up the audio just a little, and add a new intro and outro. And here we are. That said, a few corrections are in order. I horribly and stupidly butchered the word frigate earlier, as well as bravado. It's frigate, not frigate, and it's bravado, not bravado. Shame on me. I have put myself on bread and water for a week out of penance, and I will try my best to stop being such a failure in the future. Y'all know my mouth don't work right sometimes. And just in case I didn't mention it, another book I used for research on Livereen Johnson was The Avenging Fury of the Plains by Dennis McLelland. I don't agree with all of Mr. McLelland's conclusions, but his books are very thorough and chock full of valuable information. Now, since the original recording, I was able to correspond a bit with researcher Dorman Nelson. Check out his website, johnliveryandjohnston.com. That's Johnston with a T. And he is in the process of writing a new and very comprehensive volume on the real Livery and Johnson. Mr. Nelson has apparently unearthed quite a bit of new information, including photos, so I cannot wait to give it a read. He's promised to let me know when it's getting ready to publish, and I shall pass said information on to you. As far as any other lingering questions I still have regarding Johnson, I'm still very curious as to his actual year of birth, as well as if he served during the Mexican-American War or not, as is commonly believed. I don't think there's any argument that Johnson absolutely spent time at sea, probably in the Navy. It's just a matter of when. Finally, in regard to Livery and Johnson being more than a little inclined to spin in tall tales, I don't feel like I expanded on that as much as I should have. The legend of Livery and Johnson is a huge part of who he was, and, as is the case with most of our Old West figures, many of these legends originated from the man himself. I think it goes without saying that the Crow Killer loved piling it on, and I'd be remiss if I didn't include one such example of the sort of stories he was prone to tell. Now, the one I'm about to share was originally reported in January of 1904 by the League of American Sportsmen, and credits Johnson with saying the following, quote, it makes me tired to hear people say that there is any danger or excitement on the ocean. I sailed all over the world when I was a kid just looking for tough times and I couldn't find them. I was shipwrecked six times, but there weren't no excitement about that. I only floated around a little for a few weeks on a leaky raft, seeing nothing but sky and water. The only lively time I had was when I jumped into the loop of a lariat and towed a raft with seven men and eight women on board into the Charleston Bay a little swim of about 385 miles. But I never could find any real excitement on the ocean, so I came out to the mountains to see if I could kick some up among the Indians. End quote. He then goes on to talk about returning to the Boston area just to see if the ocean was still there and how he tried to camp at a place called Harvard, but then boys were sassy and he gathered that Mr. Harvard was out at the time. Eventually, Johnson tells of going on a whale hunting adventure during which he lassoed a whale, rode it up onto the shore, and snubbed it to a tree before dispatching it. 
His share of the blubber came out to be $30,000, which is roughly $900,000 in today's money. And when somebody commented that it must have been a rather big well to produce such a profit, Johnson exclaimed, Big? Hell, mister, do I look like the type who'd tackle a little one? And that's about all I've got on Livery and Johnson. If you're new here, hello, my name's Josh, and I am the host of this monstrosity. Feel free to head on over to wildwestextra.com for more true tales from the wild and woolly west. And please do not hesitate to hit me up at josh at wildwestextra.com. Let me know what's on your mind. And if you really want to make my day, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wildwest and buy me a coffee. Link in the show notes. Please join me next week as we tackle a little scamp known as Cherokee Bill, a young outlaw whose final words were, I came here to die, not make a speech. Till then, try not to skin too much grizz. I hear it can cause you to go blind. And remember, always keep your nose to the wind and your eyes on the skyline. Adios. Itchy Butt Johnson.